Okay, welcome back to episode two of the podcast, Why Is This Good? Brought to you by the Naples Writers Workshop in Naples, Florida. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Christine Gill, and the founder of the Naples Writers Workshop. And this is John. Hi, I'm John. You're a member of the workshop and... No, do I have to do that again? Yes, do it again. (laughs) Okay. Um, And I have a PhD in literary cognition which is uh, something I invented in a comparative studies <laughs> program. <laughs> John writes a lot of short stories. And he's also part of um, our workshop down here. And this is Rob. Hey, I'm Rob. I'm, I'm part of the workshop for about a year and a half. And this is my first appearance on Why Is It Good? And I'm about to tell you why it's good. All right. And so the story that we're reading for um, episode two is one that Rob picked out. So Rob, tell us who wrote it, where you, where you found it, and, and why you picked it for us. This is called The Balloon by Donald Barthelme. That pronunciation is now uh, under. <laughs> you but we think it's correct that up. Uh, it was written in 1981 and it's out of a book called 60 short stories that i've had for about a year and i thought it was a good one it's a nice quick succinct story that i think people might enjoy it's a book of all his stuff right um no this is only one of maybe three or four collections that he had and i'm going to read the last two paragraphs here all right yes it's short It was suggested that what was admired about the balloon was finally this, that it was not limited or defined. Sometimes a bulge, blister, or subsection would carry all the way east to the river on its own initiative, in the manner of an army's movements on a map as seen at a headquarters remote from the fighting. Then that part would be, as it were, thrown back again, or would withdraw into new dispositions. The next morning, that part would have made another sortie, or disappeared altogether. This ability of the balloon to shift its shape, to change, was very pleasing, especially to people whose lives were rather rigidly patterned. People to Persons to whom change, although desired, was not available. The balloon, for the 22 days of its existence, offered the possibility, in its randomness, of mislocation of the self, in contradistinction to the grid of precise, regular rectangular pathways under our feet. The amount of specialized training currently needed and the consequent desirability of long-term commitments has been occasioned by the steadily growing importance of complex machinery in virtually all kinds of operations. As this tendency increases, more and more people will turn, in bewildered inadequacy, solutions for which the balloon may stand as a prototype or rough draft. I met you under the balloon on the occasion of your return from Norway. You asked if it was mine. I said it was. The balloon, I said, is a spontaneous autobiographical disclosure, having to do with the unease I felt at your absence, and with sexual deprivation. But now, that your visit to Bergen has been terminated is no longer necessary or appropriate. Removal of the balloon was easy. Trailer trucks carried away the depleted fabric, which is now stored in West Virginia, awaiting some other time of unhappiness, sometime, perhaps, when we are angry with one another. What a weird story. It is a strange little story, isn't it? I could tell that Rob picked it because Rob also writes strange little things, I think. Sometimes. Yeah, I was pretty excited when I stumbled onto this guy's stuff. And I, I kind of mentioned in our in our last podcast episode, this is one of those stories where, like, what was it? Midnight Zone by Lauren Groff um, that John picked. When you read that last paragraph, you can never have another. You're always going to have a different reading then, you know, like. Of the, of the first time you read it. When I read it, there's all these opportunities for what people are defining the balloon as or how they feel about it. And then when you read sort of the narrator's explanation, I can only ever take it that way now. So I don't know how you guys felt about the ending, but I really like having like an answer. Um, and I really liked hearing that from him, right? It, this was a specific feeling that he felt, and this is the way that he could make everybody else in that town feel it somehow. I'm curious, what were some of your early interpretations before you got to the end? I don't know. Um, I was more interested in how people were reacting to it as like an actual physical thing being there, not like why was it there. Um, so I was just blown away the whole time it, it, that people accepted it. 
They're like, oh, this balloon's here now. <laughs> yeah. I was like, wait, what? Like, what universe is this? But there was like a little shift, I think, where people started to say, like, I'll meet you at this intersection where the balloon dips down. And it just became like this presence that they dealt with. And it, that's what I mean when I say that you can never have another interpretation of it. Because by the end, for me, this like overwhelming grief that was literally hanging for him, right, over everything, um, ended up having something to do with his daily interactions. Like, meet me at this part of the balloon. Like, this grief or this loss or emptiness that I'm feeling is expanding to everything for me in these 22 days. So I didn't really, I had no idea what was going on. I don't know what you guys thought the balloon was supposed to be. I thought it was a, the way I, when I was reading it, because there's all these um, syntactic clues and he refers to himself as I and we and a group of engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this tension between what everyone in the town thinks is going on with the balloon and what he, uh, the narrator, seems to know what is actually going on with the balloon. Like, he talks about the apparent purposelessness of the balloon was vexing, as was the fact that it was there at all. And this, it's vexing amongst the people who are trying to figure out what's going on with this balloon. And then people are inventing their own ways of interacting with it, their own theories of why it's there and how it got there. But we get a sense that the narrator knows why it's there throughout. So when we get to that final paragraph, it's like the payoff. He's like, finally, yeah, this is, this is actually why, what's going on. And I thought that was very interesting. I guess for me, like, my best guess at why it was there was that it was just, like, this art installation. But what I couldn't figure out was it wasn't beautiful, right? Like, they described it as being, like, gray and yellow and brown. And it was getting in the way of things. And and people didn't really necessarily like having to deal with it. Yeah, it was just, it was ugly. And by the end, like, the description of it being this hanging feeling was was really authentic. That's interesting. It, it seems like we may be looking at a story about how people just encounter art in general. And I think we're coming out of kind of the heyday of abstract art at this point when he was writing it. And I know a little bit about his background. He did work for a particular museum as a curator. And I think he had a strong interest in abstract art. And I think he was friendly with Willem de Kooning. And in some of his other stories, they're so abstract. And this one is fairly straightforward. So it, it seems like he's, we're, the balloon obviously challenges an inter- interpretation. And I think he's talking about artwork or just the narrative in general where people are, they seem forced. They're literally submerged under this, th- this thing, whether it's an artwork or a narrative that needs to have meaning. And then we find out, according to the creator of it, the narrator, that it doesn't need to have meaning. And that's really, um, as a writer, that's really freeing to hear. It's that you don't have to be so submerged under this need to explain yourself. The art can just be beautiful in and of itself. And to hear him kind of go back to what Christine mentioned about this being kind of a, it's, that represents a sad feeling at his partner being away. That just makes it so, um, unexpectedly poignant. And it's kind of an emotional reading too. I found myself just, just being emotional reading the last part of it when I'd first read it, um, a little while ago. Just where did this come from? Cause you have such an academic feel to it. And then it turns out, no, we're, this guy just misses his girlfriend or his partner, whoever. <laughs> and the sex. And the sex, obviously. <laughs> This is, uh, he, he's described in, in most biographical, uh, statements as being a postmodernist and that the concept of questioning what truth is and interpretation and people's search for meaning and the problem, why the search for meaning is problematic versus, you know, intentions that an artist might have or that a creator might have is all wrapped up in that postmodernist, uh, philosophy. So, you know, this, this read to me almost like something you could put into a, uh, a seminar on postmodernism is like well how does what happened in order to create this balloon differ from the way in which people are 
interacting with it and creating meaning for themselves. I almost felt like I was back in school. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a lot to read into it. And then even on the face, there's something like kind of playful about it until you got to that last paragraph where, like Rob said, it definitely took a turn and there was a different tone in that paragraph. It was less funny, the idea of a balloon hanging around to have to confront that feeling. And then there are just like certain phrases that I, I really liked. I felt myself like kind of checking off all those lines over and over. Even like the very beginning, he sets this tone. He's like, the balloon beginning at a point on 14th Street, the exact location of which I cannot reveal. <laughs> it was like, oh, okay. You know, like this guy's in charge of the story and he's not going to tell us everything. This uh, is That's one of those clues that I was talking about for that he has narrated, uh, he has knowledge that we don't. Yeah, exactly. And that the people in town don't kinda, have. Yeah. Right. Yeah, the people have no idea why the balloon's there. He's not going to tell us. But then at the end, it kind of, like you said, pays off. Um, I loved all the descriptions of... Because he's obviously describing the way it's hanging there over and over and over, right? So he has to do that differently each time. And um, I just liked on that first page, he talked about the soft, imperceptible sighing of gas through the valves. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. Let's see. It says, since the meaning of the of the balloon could never be known absolutely. I just love how, like, I'm still reading it, even though he's kind of telling me, like, you're, you're not going to get it, you know? Like, even these people don't get it, and, and I'm not going to tell you. Um, and then I just loved all the descriptions, too, of the way that people start running around on it. Like, they're kind of, like, having fun with it. Like, at first I was like, oh, they're on top of it. Oh, wait, they're under it. I don't know. Um, yeah, and here's the description of the colors. Muted grays and browns, for the most part, contrasted with walnut and soft, forgotten yellows. Yeah, it's melancholy. Yeah, forgotten yellows. It's fun to think of this as an abstractionist really going after figurative painting or just figurative art. If you were to think of it narratively, a story like... The Midnight Zone by Lauren Groff, where we're with her, we follow what's going on. It's a straight linear narrative. Whereas this is obviously, the balloon itself is an abstraction, and it's entirely owned by the the creator of it, and it's his. And he doesn't necessarily want to tell you what it's about. Right, right. (laughs) Um, Particularly when this, I did not read this earlier, but that is the balloon was, in this man's views, an imposture, something inferior to the sky. So you can see that sort of tension between abstract and figurative art, where the abstraction, as far as the creator's concerned, is more beautiful than the sky itself. So the thing that the balloon is taking up space of is that's replacing the sky in a sense that it's now over people. And that's what's more important to the artist. It's not representing exactly what he's seeing in the sky, but it's he wants to be the creator. And I think that goes back to what John says about postmodernism being, it's really a world creation where this there's no parallels and there does, doesn't need to be parallels. And it's fun seeing an artist take total ownership of his art and not being beholden to, well, this is what the sky looks like. We have to yeah. make it perfectly. And it's really challenging, too. There's an aggressiveness to that that's really appealing as well, that I think he offsets that nicely with playfulness. Yeah, he's like, this is the sky now. Right, You don't even get to know where it starts or what it means, but Mm -hmm. it's the sky. There is that weird sort of aside on 5657 where he just, you'll have to see this when you actually read it, Um, but he breaks it up into like these quotes where it looks like he's citing what he describes as critical opinion. And there's just like quotes um, all over the page, like, indented at certain parts and that itself felt like this artistic tone that we're talking about right like he's like oh well screw paragraphs now and like none of it even really made sense to me munch munching yeah he described <laughs> yeah some that of was the a great edit. munching 
And then there was another part on 56. I don't know if you guys remember this part or if you took it to mean anything, but I, I thought it was hilarious. Um, it says, another man, on the other hand, might view the balloon as if it were part of a system of unanticipated re- rewards as when one's employer walks in and says, here, Henry, take this package of money I've wrapped for you because we have been doing so well in the business here and I admire the way that you bruise the tulips without which bruising your department would not be a success or at least not the success that it is. I was like, what is he talking about? I don't think there's any historical precedent to bruise the tulips. <laughs> yeah. That's such a beautiful phrase. Too. <laughs> I love the way you bruise the tulips. Right. And there's that night, the words sort of look alike. You have the UI and then another UI. And there's mm-hmm. that nice sort of um, Don DeLillo talks about a visual correspondence that he likes between words. Okay. So if he likes to forego meaning, as he says, he'll look for words that sort of look alike. And I think that's kind of a neat uh, postmodernist trait where it's really just, we're in a visual art a lot of the time. Yeah. We're looking at letters. They're pretty. Let's put them together and see what happens. So there's that fun joy of experimenting that I think really manifests itself there. Yeah. Yeah, and even if you don't understand it or or know what he was necessarily going for, it all lends to that kind it's of. It's not like, to be understood, right? Yeah, this is like this topsy turvy thing, and you don't you don't get to know what bruising the tulips means. <laughs> you just get to be confounded by it. And the a, a few lines later, for this man, the balloon might be a brilliantly heroic muscle and pluck experience. Muscle and pluck is from right. Walt Whitman, apparently. Yeah. And I'm not sure how the two correspond, but that's just another beautiful <laughs> phrase. All right. So what do you guys think we could copy from this? Not that it can be copied, but... I thought that this had a lot of um, assonance or rhyming with yeah. uh, Kafka, uh, the metamorphosis, wherein you introduced an, an absurdity at the beginning and you treat it as fact, as a, as a writer. Like, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. The giant balloon filled the thing. Gregor Samsa turned into a giant bug. Whatever it happens to me, and just follow out the, the consequences of that in a realistic you know, human moral way. And, you know, if you, whatever you start with, whatever that thing happens to represent, just treat it as if it's a concrete reality and find out what happens. Is it really, I think that's a good lesson. Going back to the section that we were talking about just now with like the different words being mashed together because they sound or look good together. Um, sometimes I'll be writing something and I'll look for like ways to describe it. And I'll end up, like, not making up a word, not totally being Dr. Seuss, but, like, the way that, like, I throw certain adjectives together, I, I realize it's not ac- it's not correct, right? Like, the John Bronsteads of the world would come down on me and say that this is this is incorrect. But sometimes it, it sounds better, you know, or it sounds fun. And um, the only thing, example I can think of, it's not a good one, but I, I said something once about, like, a car ticking hot in the driveway. That was perfect. Yeah, I, I thought it was good, yeah. but I remember a couple people saying, well, I don't know if that's really, like, what it what it means and um i remember even writing it and like i said this is not a good example but sometimes it just sounds better and it feels better and i feel like he was probably very aware of that when he wrote some of these descriptions of it like munching he's like you know what that's exactly what i thought of i think it's funny and i'm gonna leave it where maybe there was 10 other examples of what he could have substituted so there's like some kind of freedom in the way that he probably wrote this right where he's just like gonna throw caution to the wind somehow or just you have to suspend belief when you read this um, things like that invite um interpretation it's like what we were talking about in the previous uh um when the sun emerged into um yeah it makes you look at something familiar and reinterpret it and this is something unfamiliar right and we're trying to understand it, and if you put in words that um, aren't readily, don't have a ready meaning, an obvious meaning, it helps you, you make, makes you think about what it could mean. Right. Which helps you interpret and understand what the uh, the strange thing actually is. It just seemed like he had fun writing this, and okay. I don't always have fun when I'm writing, so <laughs> that's, that's I think, what I want to take well, away from Your example, ticking hot in the... 
the driveway. I mean, things ticking is not really a uh, is not a transitive verb. You don't. Here we go. <laughs> but because the way you put that phrase together makes you think about well, what does that mean? It's like, oh, I've heard cards do that. Yeah. And this is just a great way to describe it um, that I had never thought of before. It's ticking. It's hot. It's all these things. <laughs> and, it's all accurate on its own. It, it works. It works really well. Cool. What do you think, Rob? Well, it's such. It's unpromising, and that's. Really, I was thinking about some of the words that you guys just said where Christine's mentioning fun and playful and like, I'm not writing, like, I have a job. I'm a, I write for my job and it's not boring, but I want to have fun and that's what brings me to fiction. And to see someone like this who's just like, this is what is fun for me. And I see that in other short stories as well, but when someone is is so willing to be married to one specific idea and then follow through it, as John said, that's just so exciting to me and it's just, we're, I mean, the novel has been popular for a couple, uh, 200 or so years at this point, I think. So to see someone really try to push the envelope with, with just, with fiction and short fiction, I mean, what else can you ask for? This story is 35, 36 years old and it feels really cutting edge. And that's inspiring. It's not, it's not really daunting as a fiction writer, but when you, when I read something like this, it's like, what, what do I have in me that I can really push myself to just find new stuff? So when I'm, when I'm sitting down to write, the most fun I have is when something surprises me it's like where did that like with christine's ticking phrase i remember that from her story and it stood out for me as well and it's like that's the fun stuff it's just like something new so to see that happen in, in something that's you know almost 50 years old it's it's really cool and I, I i'd love to really try to find that in my own stuff i think too and tell me if you guys think i'm wrong but he's having fun letting go not really worrying if if you're gonna get the right interpretation of it and and sometimes i write something and i'm so stressed about someone reading it the right way you know we'll workshop stories and someone will say i thought of it this way and and there's always room for interpretation in, in fiction but usually when i write and i'm sure for a lot of writers especially when it comes to like a novel you know you're, you're investing 300 pages you want to get the right reading of it you have an intent and a purpose and and this seems like he, he just wanted to write what he was going to write and you, you ne- weren't necessarily going to even like it. I have a really hard time with that. I don't know if you guys are thinking that when you're writing things. It sounds like Rob isn't. Rob wants to have fun when he writes that kind of thing. Cause like you, I write for a living and I'm, I'm, I work for like a public agency. So we're, com- we're communicating information. It has to be understood correctly. Um, so I, I find myself writing that way, even in fiction. And this guy just seems like he just had a blast. He didn't care. Yeah. It makes you think about your priorities as a writer. Is yeah. it to communicate or is it? Is it something else? How important? I mean, communication is important. I think we get so wrapped up in, I need to connect with you. Yeah, that's yeah. great. But what's happening for you at the point of creation? Are you enjoying this? Or are you just giving a speech at this point? Right. <laughs> yeah. So it kind of makes you rearrange your priorities when you come across someone this unique. And that's great. If you can get a sh- shift in perspective anytime you read something, then, you know, point scored. I don't think I'll ever be writing anything like this guy, but um, I like his approach. So cool. All right. Well, that is it for the second episode of our podcast, Why Is This Good? Um, in our third episode, we will be discussing a story in the, U- in the, in the New Yorker called The Lie by T. Corrigan Boyle. How do you say that? T.C. Boyle. Yes, T.C. Boyle. <laughs>